everyone. It's Anne Louise Gittleman here. Yet once again, my friends, I'm the host of the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, where, as you know, I tackle the most urgent and controversial health trends and topics with many of the world's leading experts in health and wellness and fitness. This is the health information that you will not hear anywhere else, I promise. And if you do, it'll be 10 years before everywhere else. And my sponsors today are Unikey Health Systems and CS Health, who make this show possible every single week. You can find my specially formulated products at unikeyhealth.com and do check out cs-health.com for Vitalica Plus, the only fully acclaimed sulforaphane product on the market, which I take daily as an internal sunscreen. And I also use their beautiful broccoli seed oil daily as a protective mechanism for my skin. Today, we're going to be challenging all the conventional wisdom surrounding autism, and who better to answer my questions than J.B. Hanley, who's the founder of Generation Rescue, a nonprofit organization dedicated to autism recovery. J.B., why did you get interested in autism? Uh, my son was diagnosed in 2004, and like many other parents, you start a journey to try to figure out how best to help your child. And so he was diagnosed. And so what are the signs of autism and why the heck is it so, so epidemic in this day and time? <laughs> um, I only giggle because it's such a controversial topic. Um, the signs for a parent when their child is young would be that they aren't speaking, that they aren't making eye contact, that they aren't engaging you in the activities that they're doing. Uh, if a parent was genuinely concerned about their child's behavior, they could go online and find something called the M-CHAT for autism, M-CHAT. It's like a 15-question test, and it's very quick and thorough. You can, you can figure it out. So those signs start to manifest somewhere between the ages of two and four. Um, if they're not pointing, if they're not making eye contact, if they're not speaking, if they're late in development, those are all worrying possibilities of autism. Um, my son was diagnosed right before his second birthday. Um, there's vitriolic debate around two topics. One, are the number of children today with autism larger than they were 20 or 30 years ago? And do you and think they are? I, I think the science is unequivocal that the increase has been dramatic. And I think anybody, you know, I'm 51 years old. I think anybody my age or older knows that to be true because we were all in school back in the day and you didn't see anywhere near this number of kids. And more importantly, the science clearly shows that. I think the next giant question is causation. Uh, and as you're well aware, the debate there is also uh, vitriolic with with many parents feeling that vaccines played a role or other environmental triggers played a role and others arguing vehemently that it's more um, genetic. And what do you think? Well, I think in the case of my son that he declined precipitously after his vaccinations. Uh, and the first book I wrote in 2018 called How to End the Autism Epidemic walk through what I think is a very compelling scientific explanation for how a vulnerable subpopulation of children are at risk from 
the adjuvants in vaccines creating immune activation events in their brains during critical phases of development. So, and, and what would those be particularly? I mean, can you? Um, I think aluminum is actually. Yeah. I think we missed the fact that um, the aluminum, which is in a vaccine to agitate the immune system, is actually nanoparticulate aluminum, meaning it's man-made. And because of that, um, the macrophages in the body rush it to the brain where it then sits and creates sort of a simmering infection. And there's pretty compelling science that walks through that entire process and how it takes place. And I think in this vulnerable subset of children, it's extremely prob problematic if it happens at the wrong time during their development. And so I wrote the book to try to explain to myself, frankly, what happened to my son. And so I can speak on his level that with him, he was a normally developing child who then regressed and the aggression took place right after the vaccine appointments. And, you know, you get, you get immediately accused of being an anti-vaxxer, this and that. What's interesting about most autism parents I know, we were very compliant with the vaccine schedule. Mm. We did everything on time. We did exactly what our pediatrician told us to do. We were the farthest thing from, you know, anarchists or outside the box thinkers on this topic. We were it took the experience of watching our son literally disappear before our eyes to wake us up to the fact that something may not be right. So, you know, and I recognize that different parents of children with autism have different views as to what happened. I can only share my own experience. So you have three children. Was your son Jameson the only child that was affected? Yes. My oldest son was certainly affected by his vaccines, but the biomedical intervention that we did with him pretty much brought him right back to normal. Whereas with Jamie, it was a much more extreme case. And, you know, interestingly, Jamie um, had significantly more rounds of antibiotics in his first two years of life than my older son did. There are many who feel that that combination can be very, very dangerous. Again, uh, you know, N of one, but in Jamie's case, it did seem to be I mean, he was literally always on antibiotics for ear infections and other things, which in retrospect, you know, makes me recoil with horror once I learn more about how damaging those can be to a microbiome. Uh, you know, at the time, again, we were just sort of doing whatever the pediatrician told us. So that, that combination could, could have played a role. So can one get a vaccine that's aluminum free? Well, some are, right? So, so, so here's the answer. They either are in the way they're, so like the MMR shot, for example, does not have aluminum because it has a live virus. So it doesn't need the aluminum to stimulate the immune system. So you can't sort of choose between having aluminum or not for a particular vaccine. They're either made with it or they aren't. Mm -hmm. Most of the childhood shots have them because most of the childhood shots are a killed virus that you need the aluminum to kind of, well, maybe there's something safer, but right now, Aluminum is the thing used to agitate the immune system to then recognize um, the antigen, which is what we call, you know, whether it's diphtheria or hepatitis B, whatever it might be, the antigen that's in there. So the aluminum plays a critical role to the vaccine working, but it sort of makes sense that if something can agitate the immune system in a meaningful way, is it possible that that autoimmunity could become too extreme and create real problems? And this is, it was really the subject of my 2018 book, which was, 
Yes, in certain children it can because that aluminum sort of gets stuck in the brain and creates what's known as an immune activation event uh, in the brain's immune system and, and you know, dangerous things can happen. So I, I'm so interested in aluminum because JB, I wrote a book called Radical Longevity, which really points a finger to aluminum as being a trigger for Alzheimer's. Mm. Yes. So it's, it's a big problem to say the least. What... Uh, it, it is, it is. And, and yeah, Dr. Chris Exley yes. out of Keele University is sort of the foremost neurotoxicologist who, <laughs> you know, uh, it sounds like you're familiar with him. So he clearly yes. understands the, the link between aluminum and Alzheimer's. And obviously there's, there's the ionic aluminum that's sort of present in the, in the world, which has its own set of dangers, but we may have mistakenly turbocharge that through creating this adjuvant for certain shots because again it's a nanoparticle it's a it's a man altered form of aluminum that the body cannot recognize at all so what is very one, hard to get it out so, so, well that's going to be my next question to you and I, and we're going to talk about your newest book which is an autism miracle in in a bit but in terms of how to end the autism epidemic do you give a protocol for getting out the aluminum and other adjuvants yeah, so, you know, I'm just going to defer to Professor Exley at Keele University. Sure. He claims that, you know, chelating aluminum out of the body is very difficult, but that the only way that he has been able to scientifically show it happening is with water with a lot of silica in it, naturally there, bioavailable. And so he literally recommends people drink like a liter of Fiji water a day because Fiji's high in silica. Yeah, there are other brands, I'm sure, by the way, I'm not promoting a single brand, but he claims that the only thing he's been able to measure aluminum coming out of the body is when people drink silica water that is, he says, you can't take a silica supplement. You got to drink it in bioavailable water. Form it in a liquid mm -hmm. form. And I'm aware of that. And there are all kinds of recipes online. of yeah, water. Which I can't say. So that's what he says. I don't, <laughs> have a, I don't have an opinion about it. I think that, you know, the, the recommendation that I make in the book is that, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know that the vaccine schedule between the mid 80s and today has more than trebled in terms of the number of vaccines we give to kids. And so, um, you know, I make two relatively simple recommendations. The first is that uh, we aggressively screen for this vulnerable subset of kids um, in advance of their first vaccine, because I think we know enough about the children who are more likely to be at risk, like my son. And, 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 and who then, would they, and who would they be? I mean, how would no, you... I, think the, I think the simplest who they would be, would be, um, the child of any mother with, um, a host of autoimmune disorders already in place, right? <laughs> so you'd kind of go down a checklist and that would be a, that'd be a red flag. Um, and then the other one is a little more complicated, which is that there's a there's a mitochondrial component to the risk with these kids. And so you do a blood test that basically measures like um, how healthy the mitochondria are. And if it falls below a certain level, that child's at a much higher risk. And I go through how there's actually some really, really mainstream intelligent scientists who understand this at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, which is part of Johns Hopkins. They understand that mitochondrial dysfunction and bad reactions to vaccines are highly correlated. So you could do the testing in advance. And then the other thing I recommend is that we simply return to the vaccine schedule from the 1980s. 
I, I love that. Yeah, so I mean, not, you know, that, and, and as you know, that makes you an anti-vaxxer, even if you're recommending like a, a more moderate schedule. Um, so, yeah, so I do make some, I do throw out some ideas in the book for how to reduce the numbers of kids who are um, affected. It sounds like you're a bit on the same page as Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is also a guest on my podcast. Yeah, no question. I think he's one of the more informed advocates on this topic probably in the world. And I greatly appreciate his willingness to use his platform and absorb an unbelievable amount of public flack and keep talking. He's a <laughs> heroic person to say the least. Yeah, I deeply admire him. I do too. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. So what is the story, without getting into too much detail, what happened with this Dr. Andy Wakefield and the vaccine conundrum? Well, Wakefield uh, was a gastroenterologist in Britain, and he started having parents come in who all seemed to have children that shared two things. They, they were suffering from relatively extreme gastrointestinal distress, which is why he ended up seeing them. And they had autism. And this was sort of fascinating to him as a physician because he'd never seen this kind of gut problems before. Um, and so being a curious gastroenterologist, he studied these children intensely. Andy Wakefield actually effectively discovered a new form of GI distress with a very complicated name known as iliocolonic hyperplasia. And um, he was the first to report on it, study it, understand it. And one of the papers that he wrote about this issue was what's known as a case series, where he saw children in succession having this GI distress problem. And he made, he made a note of the fact that of the 13 children in that study, nine of the parents reported that the autism came soon after their MMR shot. Mm. And that sealed Andy Wakefield's fate for eternity. It's interesting because people always talk about, oh, Andy faked the data, made up this, did that. Anybody could read the paper and realize that the only thing ever said in, in a paper by Andy Wakefield about the MMR was that um, parents said the autism happened after the shot, right? Like that's literally it. So, um, he held a press conference soon after that paper was published and he expressed concern about MMR. You know, a, a high pedigree doctor writing a paper in the Lancet Journal from a great hospital was a yes. grave threat. Yes, yes, yes. It was a grave threat. And so it's interesting, Dr. Wakefield's paper, this controversial one is still cited all the time because it's really a paper in the field of gastroenterology, right? That's the important point of the paper. It's all about these children and their bowel distress. And we, we now know it's, it's common knowledge that children with autism have significantly higher rates of GI distress. So Andy was the first to point that out. Um, his fate was sealed by mentioning what the parents had told him about the correlation Just to MMR. No and good. he's never been able to recover. No, no, no good deed goes unpunished. But what I'm wondering about, and maybe you could shed some light on this, 
Why is there such a visceral response to the vaccination issue? Is it because parents feel guilty that they could have put their children at risk, so they deny all the evidence that shows that some children can't tolerate certain vaccines? Well, it's you know, vicious, it's vicious out there. You, yeah, you're it wasn't it. it wasn't vicious in two thousand and five when I first started talking about this topic. It wasn't vicious. In fact mainstream reporters were, were willing to report on it. Larry King was willing me willing to have me on his show as late as 2009 to debate pediatricians about it. Mainstream publications would publish articles wondering if this might actually be true. And I think we forget that, that the debate has really taken on this more explosive vibe lately. And so I think it's it's not reasonable to think that it's just the parental guilt playing a role because that is, a, I think, a part of it. But the reason that it's now sort of off limits and taboo is because the mainstream media funded by Big Pharma has done a wonderful job of demonizing anyone who dares utter the possibility that this is true. And this demonic portrayal hammered into people's brains day in and day out can produce an effect. And if, if you don't think that's possible, you haven't lived through the last year, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that right. people can sort of be brainwashed into thinking things. And, and what's absolutely mystifying about watching this all happen for someone in my shoes is how limited the actual science that has been done on this topic. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are 11 licensed vaccines for children and they are administered three or four times to a child, right? They'll get multiple doses. Of those 11 licensed vaccines, the only vaccine that has been studied for its possible correlation to autism is the MMR. Uh. And that leaves 10 vaccines that have literally never been looked at. And so you get these people absolutely pounding the table this has been studied. We've looked at this ad nauseum. There's been a hundred, you know, it's, it's just not even true. And, and, you know, 99.9% .9 of the world doesn't know that or doesn't take the time to learn that. It's part of what I tried to argue in my first book. And so I think we have to realize that the most powerful force to create, to kind of turn this into an almost off limits topic is the cunning deliberate behind the scenes manip manipulation of the media by big pharma who wields the biggest pocketbook and the most influence. And when you have senators asking social media companies to deplatform people who talk bad about vaccines, where do you think they're getting their marching orders from? Absolutely. I mean, come on, were we all born yesterday? How do you think that's all happening and why? Yeah, senators have no idea what they're talking about. They don't understand the details. And this is this is how pharma operates in in the shadows, always with self interest in mind, and nothing will undermine a vaccination program more than a lifelong disability affecting one in 36 children. Just imagine for a second, if that actually became an acknowledged truth. Mm. That's not a one in a million risk anymore. 
that's not a one in a million risk. And I, I do believe, I don't think anybody intended for that to happen. I do believe what happened was as the schedule tripled, people didn't realize that layering one shot on top of another, on top of another, it creates like an exponential risk, not a linear risk because of the different ways it affects the body that we, we barely understand, right? And, and worse, many of the risks with vaccines are, are what we call latent risks, which simply means they take time to manifest, mm. are largely unmeasurable with current surveillance systems. And so what I think really happened was you had well-intended people trying to stop certain childhood illnesses. I, you know, it's well-intended. And, and we started to add a bunch of vaccines to the schedule after the 1986 act that indemnified vaccine makers from liability. Mm -hmm. And the market was much more appealing, you know, so a kid born in the early eighties versus a kid born in the late nineties received very, very different vaccine schedules. And then all of a sudden this pesky autism thing started cropping up and well-intended people didn't want to have to face that they might've caused it and profiteering pharma certainly didn't want to have to face that. And I think that's how we got ourselves into the mess that we're in today. And they're doing a very, very effective job of portraying guys like me as demons, crazies, and keeping you know the Bobby Kennedys of the world off as many social platforms as they can for what to me, for anybody who's sort of unbiased and willing to just look at the facts is a relatively obvious story. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. If you were to do this again with your son, would you have given him the, the 1980s vaccination schedule or would you have treated him differently? I mean, knowing what I know today? Yes. No, 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 no. So tell I mean, me about that. I, I want to go I, into I'm that. A, I'm a parent first, right? Okay, and so... The only thing that we parents really care about is the health and safety of our own kids. Yes. For whatever reason, which science still couldn't fully explain, my son Jamie and vaccines do not get along. And so I think every single vaccination is a risk reward decision at an individual level, given the scale of disability that Jamie has to deal with today. And given that I don't know, because he typically got six at one time, which of the shots or the combination or the time of day or whatever was the thing that pushed him over the edge, there's no set of circumstances that would allow me to ever consider that risk again, even if it upped the risks from certain infectious diseases a little more. Again, it, life is a risk reward. And, you know, what's crazy is you kind of go through you know, disease, but you should go through disease by disease. Like, okay, what are the risks of my kid getting hepatitis B? Hmm. And how long does the vaccine protection last? Mm. Well, I think if someone did that work, they'd be shocked. The protection only lasts four to six years. And the risks of a child born into a kind of normal household are nearly zero. No. I can live with that, right? Everything in life is, I, I take a risk every time I put my kid in the car, right? And I'm behind the wheel. Everything I do has a risk associated with it. So I get to choose what level of risk profile I'm willing to take for my kid. So for Jamie Handley, distinct from your child or someone else's child, no, no effing way would I get near one of those given what he's had to go through if I was given the opportunity in a time machine to go back. For the average healthy kid, do I think the 1980s schedule can produce a reasonable risk reward? 
yeah, as long as you can still screen for the vulnerable ones, I think so. So that's very balanced and very sound. Yes, and this, by the way, this makes me a, you know, <laughs> demonic maniac. You know, that's that's all the mainstream media wants to do. You, you'll see that they never, I used to be interviewed, even in the mainstream media, to give the alternative viewpoint as you can tell from this conversation, it's pretty rational. Very rational, very sound. Um, they just don't interview anymore. They, they, the pharma got the drumbeat going that, you know, the other, we don't deserve to have two sides to this story. But sort of like a flat earther, right? You don't debate a flat earther because of course that's, that's, there's no truth to the earth being flat. Why would you give them the time of day? They, they put, people like me in that same category. It's pretty impressive. I mean, I have to say I'm impressed with pharma's PR machine and how well it's done. And then perception becomes reality among the mainstream people out it's, there. It's, again, when I say impressive, I don't mean that- In a positive I, way. I don't, yeah, it doesn't mean I like it. I'm just like, wow, that's been really effective. Yeah, the brainwashing has been effective. So it, that- It has, and, and, and if you didn't, if you, it's like if you didn't appreciate before the power of brainwashing, you if certainly you don't. If you don't see that you've just been subjected to a 15 month vaccine ad, I can't help you. So, so that leads me to another question the elephant that's uh, dancing in the middle of the room here. So, tell me what your feelings are about the COVID vaccines. I think if you like, it's not a vaccine, it's a Genetic it's therapy. gene therapy. Mm -hmm. If you like emergency use gene therapy with no understanding of long-term risk for a disease that for 99.9% .9 of the population has an extremely low mortality rate, then this is the vaccine for you. If on the other hand, you're able to calibrate risk and reward and you like to actually read the science, I think what you would discover is that we don't know if the vaccine reduces transmissibility at all. And so if you think you're doing this to keep you from being someone who is a vector to pass the disease on, the science hasn't shown that it has any bearing on that. I think it's, I think it's reasonable to say that there, there is some proof that the severity of the illness is reduced in people who've taken the vaccine. I think there's, it's safe to say that's true. And so what I would say is I think that people in the high, there, there are a group of people who probably do face a five to 7% risk of death if they get COVID. Mm -hmm. they, there are, they, I mean, I believe, I personally believe that I should say. Mm -hmm. They're north of 70, yes. they're obese, they have diabetes. Yes. If I had those three criteria, I would probably think about it. I really would. I really would. Because once you're dead, you're dead, right? And so, you know, I've said before, like, if some disease came along that was killing half the people, and I could take a vaccine that was killing 5% of the people, I'd probably take the vaccine, right? I mean, I, I, I'm willing to do the math. So I think there's a very small population for whom the vaccine could well make sense. I think this idea of rolling it out to healthy adults is insane. And I think that 
one of the things that is really underappreciated right now is the people who already got COVID who are getting the shots. Mm-hmm. You're really messing with, there's all kinds of complex things that can happen that real immunologists already understand. Um, I think the latent risks to the vaccine is a total unknown. Mm-hmm. And I would just say to a parent, like I, so I'm the parent of a 22 year old, an 18 year old and a 14 year old. I don't understand what set of circumstances would make it reasonable to give shots to kids in that age group based on the math flu is a much greater killer of children than covid ever was Mm -hmm. um so i just that that whole risk reward and knowing the ifr and appreciating that this is an emergency use authorization and on and on some people just seem blind to that. They just want to get the damn thing and get their freedom back. I mean, what an amazing <laughs> consumer product. Hey, if you pay 200 bucks to us, you will get your freedom back. I mean, that's a comp- that's even more potent than like caffeine. You know what I mean? Like that mm-hmm. is a potent sale. Um, so needless to say, I am not a fan. So why getting back to autism, the, a question just popped in my head. Why is it so much more prevalent among males? The best theory that I've heard, it's a theory, I just want to be really clear, is that testosterone accelerates the toxicity of aluminum and estrogen protects. Wow, would you repeat that? That's worthy of repetition. Yeah, that that testosterone, which is obviously present in males to a much higher degree than females, accelerates the toxicity of all heavy metals. Mm. Um, that's now that that's actually a fact. The part about te- testosterone accelerating toxicity, and you can do that in a petri dish with brain cells and testosterone and mercury or aluminum. Um, so that part is actually factual whether that's what's happening in the human body and that's why 80% of the cases are boys is, is still, that's conjecture on my part, but that's the best explanation that I've heard for what is a very large gender disparity on the number of cases. And didn't we go, what wasn't, I mean, I remember the original stats, it was something like one in 300, maybe 10, 20 years ago. And then it popped. Oh no, it's more extreme than that. So in my book, how to end the autism epidemic, I actually do something that nobody seems to do these days, which is dust off like the very, very comprehensive prevalence studies done in the late 70s. Mm. Like for whatever reason, South Dakota did this like comprehensive look at the whole state, which is a small state. It was one in 10,000. I mean, very, very legitimately one in 10,000. We're talking about a disability that you don't miss, okay? You don't miss autism. It isn't something that gets missed. Um, One in 10,000. And I go through this in detail because there are these, they're just, they say things that just have no basis. In fact, there are these apologists who claim it's always been there at the same rate. We've always had this many people affected by autism. It's, there's just a natural level. There's just nothing to support that contention. And what happens is we, we lose sight of these things over time, right? Because they're drilled into our head. 
I mean, most people who went to medical school in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s, they'd never met someone with autism. Mm -hmm. never, if you ask a kid today, mm -hmm. like my kids, they know dozens of kids with autism. Yes. Right? Like it's, in a way, it's great because they treat them so much better. But in a way, it's tragic because there are so many more. So we're literally talking about, I have a whole chapter on this, and I cite many, many papers that anybody could go look up for themselves. You're going from one in 10,000 to one in 36. Unbelievable. And you have these jackasses trying to say, it's always been this way. Meanwhile, special education wings of schools are bursting at the seams. And then they'll go to the, down this path of, well, that's just parents seeking services. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Do you think any parent would want to seek services for their child if they didn't need it? Exactly. Like, is that really how parents work? Where you come from? It's a genuine and real massive rise. And it's really, it's sad and confusing. We've gone from World Autism Awareness Day to World Autism Appreciation Day. Mm. They're trying to move us into this like acceptance phase. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm the parent of a child with autism. I deeply want him to be accepted. So I get it. But the whitewashing of history and how dramatic prevalence has risen is deeply disturbing. So your latest book is called Underestimated, an Autism Miracle. Can you explain that title to my listeners? What is so yes. miraculous about your son who truly is miraculous? My son at the age of 17, he's now 18 and a half, at the age of 17, he presented as someone with autism who was unable to speak, um, who had mannerisms, just the way he moved, where you would quickly be able to discern that he was a special kid. Um, he had meaningful outbursts where he would stomp and moan and wave his arms and ultimately hit his own head with his hands when frustrated. Um, he had what my wife and I kind of called the real autism, if you will, right? Um, and I don't mean that to be rude to anybody who's got an autism label, who's in college and living on their own, but there's a very wide range of how autism presents. And Jamie is in the 40 to 50% of people with autism. That's about three to 5 million in the United States alone who don't speak. And when I say don't speak, Jamie could say, I want juice, you know, shower, please go car kind of things to get basic needs met but no capacity to have conversation or express emotion or anything through his words. And we hadn't found any method that allowed him to communicate any more fully than that. So <clears throat> my wife and I made the mistake of believing that as Jamie's cognition improved, his words would go up, right? We sort of met, okay, speech is sort of the metric by which, cause he can talk a few words, as he has more words that will show like that his brain is kind of getting it. And um, we knew that Jamie seemed to understand a lot of things and was very sensitive and that kind of thing, but we really didn't know where he was cognitively. I wasn't even sure how he saw the world. Does he see it the way I do? 
Does he have dreams? Does he have hopes? Does he have aspirations? I got a random call from a friend back East who has a son named Vince, who is very much like Jamie in terms of being a non-speaker. And she said, you're never going to believe this, but Vince is writing all these amazing things. And we've discovered that he's brilliant. And I thought, well, that's great for her. <laughs> you know, I'm mm -hmm. thrilled for her. Can't imagine that this could ever happen to Jamie. And what she basically explained was that she'd found this communication method called spelling to communicate. And it had a relatively simple but revolutionary premise. Basically, what the people in spelling to communicate say is that the non-speakers are cognitively normal or brilliant, that their disability is not cognition, but rather motor, motor planning. Huh. unable to get their body to do what their mind wants them to do. Huh. And if you give them and, and asking them to talk or to type with their fingers is putting a ton of pressure on their fine motor, which is where the disability is most manifest. And if you can pull the communication out of fine motor and put it into gross motor, motor by basically having them move their arm from their shoulder to point at a letter board held out in front of them, once you teach them to do this method with repetition, they will find the capacity to become open communicators, meaning that they, you, you sort of go from spelling words to sort of master the movement, if you will, kind of like learning a golf swing. Um, you will start to see what's actually going on in their heads. And to a child, they're, they're brilliant and normal, if you will. Mm. And my friend, her name happens to be Honey. Honey started <laughs> sending me these paragraphs written by Vince that were unbelievable. And I quote them in the book because they're just, I'll just say it's really sophisticated language like college student or above that never in a million years would I have thought Vince would be capable of. And so she told me this whole story and I was sort of like, in my head, I was like, well, there must be something really unique about Vince that was somehow missed. And that's wonderful for you guys. But of course, I don't even think my son Jamie can spell, much less does he have this kind of cognition. But nonetheless, there was just enough to her story and just enough to her conviction that Jamie was equally capable that we got on the airplane from here in Portland, Oregon and went to Northern Virginia to a place called Growing Kids Therapy Center, where um, a woman, her name is Elizabeth Vossler, kind of invented after years of frustration working with kids with autism, making no progress. She kind of tinkered around and figured this out. And I went back there for a couple of days to learn the method. And even in those first two days, Jamie shocked me because mm. he was able to spell. I had no wow. idea, you know? And so for several months, my wife and I worked and worked with work with him at home, which is where most of this takes place. And in about the third month, we went down to Southern California, where there's another amazing spelling to communicate teacher named Don Marie Gavin. And um, they, they use lessons to teach spelling to communicate. And there are lessons on various topics. It doesn't really matter because all of it is just intended to allow the child to spend time practicing their spelling. But Don Marie was giving Jamie a lesson on the Red Sox and the team in 06 that won the World Series for the first time in like 85 years. And I was... You know, by this time, Jamie was spelling like easily 
just known words. Jamie spell, you know, where do the Red Sox play? And Jamie would write Fenway Park, right? Like do that kind of thing. We were, we were already over the moon that this was happening. And um, Don Marie got to the end of this lesson on the Red Sox. And the backstory is I'm a diehard Yankee fan. So I couldn't stand listening to this. <laughs> and, and, and she turned to Jamie and for the first time ever, someone asked Jamie what we call an open question. She said, Jamie, what did you think of that lesson? And you got to realize we'd, we'd been spelling known words for a while just to practice, but no one had ever asked Jamie a question that had no obvious answer, uh, meaning that she was asking him for his own opinion. And Jamie spelled out, and my dad was sitting in the room when this happened too, another Yankee fan. And Jamie spelled out, the Sox won, but the Yankees are champs in my family. And it, it was like, it was like, changing. What it was just like that moment where you're like, holy blank like he has been tracking everything the whole time because it, because autism is not as you say a cognitive dysfunction yeah and and so that story is over a year old and since that time i literally have hundreds of pages in notebooks of jamie's amazing words he is he wrote part of the book he's highly intelligent He's observed everything the whole time. I mean, the, 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 the emotions that come out of me, just imagining so many beautiful things and so many tragic things like all at once, right, can be kind of overwhelming. It's like this guy, he had to sit there with so many people treating him like he was stupid, talking to him slowly, oh. asking him to do really menial, menial things having to put up with this, <clears throat> having to wonder if this would be a secret that he would keep his whole life. And it, it, there's a story. Um, so Growing Kids Therapy Center, where Spelling to Communicate was invented, they have a mantra. The mantra is the presumption of competence. And what that basically means is just assume that every non-speaker with autism, no matter how severe you think they're, they are presenting behaviorally or otherwise, just presume they are highly intelligent. Like just start there, right? Just start with the presumption of competence in every person. And it was explained to me that when we arrived at this place, they would approach Jamie, not me, right? Like you're so used to when you have a child with autism. Sure. People talk to you like the kid's not even there, right? We're all just sort of like, yeah, we know they don't know what's going on. So let me talk to you about it. No, they come up and address the child directly. Hello, Jamie. Welcome. You know, great to have you here. Blah, blah, blah. Like even that is like a radical change. Mm. And then we go, when we first go into the room for the very, very first session with Elizabeth Fossler, who figured this whole thing out, she puts her, her hand on Jamie's shoulder and she says, and I have this all on videotape because they video all these sessions. She says, Jamie, I know how smart you are. Right. No one had literally ever said that to my son. Wow. And, and I asked him about it later once, you know, because now I can ask him any question anytime. He, I literally carry a letter board around me everywhere we go. I can ask Jamie anything. I said, what did you, what did you think when Elizabeth said that to you? And he goes, he goes, I thought, how does she know? How does she know? Right? Like it's literally been his secret. And then he said, and then I thought, this is the most adorablest person I've ever met in my life. And I'm telling you, you should see these kids when they see Elizabeth. 
the love and gratitude that they have for her. Like I got to witness it myself. It's such a beautiful thing because they rightly view her as like their savior, you know, the one who believed in them. And this is an interesting thing with Jamie. He knows exactly who believes in him and who doesn't. He can pick up on it, even at his school. Not all the teachers are on board. He knows exactly where everybody is and how they think about things. How impressive. It's remarkable, yeah. And so he needs people around him who believe in him, as you can imagine. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. But, it, but um, you know, it, it, it seems to me that, that everybody should read the book Underestimated. Don't you agree? This is not just for, for parents of autistic children, but for parents of all kinds of children with, with any kind of disease or dysfunction where there's been no cure. Yeah, I mean, I, of course I would agree. It's kind of self-serving of me to say that. But what I would say is like, if you went on Amazon right now to look up the book, you can read the like five stars for yourself. And what I would say is it's, it's a really short read. It's an intensely emotional journey. Even my most stoic friends admitted that they cried throughout, but it's tears mostly of joy because I take people through my own emotional journey step by step. And I think, and I've heard, I've heard, you know, I talked to a dad who has two neurotypical kids and he was like, you know, maybe you don't realize, but he said, even for me, I wanted to sit down with my kids and sort of say like, Hey, as parents, what are we missing? Like, am I underestimating you? You know, like, yes. Um, and I think for, for me, obviously I, I really wrote it for other parents who are in my place in my shoes, so to speak. And, and the way I describe it is it's a little bit of a hope bridge because I needed that hope bridge. If you're not the parent of a child with autism, it's hard to appreciate how many hopeful moments have been dashed. And, and many of us, by the time our kids are in their late teens or early twenties, I don't want to say that we've given up but we've sort of accepted our fate because we're not willing to hope again. Sure. I had pretty much gotten to that point. And this woman, honey, was a bridge of hope for me, gave me just enough energy to make that phone call to go have that appointment. Right. Because she basically said to me, I was so, I was so disbelieving that Jamie, my son was going to be like her son, Vince. I sent her video of Jamie the night she told me the story almost to say like, see, you can't do that. And she wrote me back. Oh, Jamie's so handsome. He's so present. He's doing better than Vince already. I'm sure he's in there. This will definitely work for him. And I was like, that's not what I wanted to hear. I just wanted to get on with my life of, you know, dimmed expectations and resignation. And, and I really speak to that in the book because I, you know, I know because I'm one of them that I think it can, allow some, I mean, so one of the most gratifying things. So here's the thing, like, so I've talked to Elizabeth Vossler at Growing Kids, and I've talked to many of the S2C practitioners in the country, and the book's been out for a month now. They've been bombarded, right, with phone calls and new patients. And just last night, Elizabeth told me that one of the most gratifying things for her is the number of kids, I say kids, 
the number of people with autism in the 20 to 30 age group who are showing up with their parents. I talked to a practitioner in Tampa, Florida. She has a 46 year old woman whose aging parents read my book and they're bringing her in thinking this, maybe this is finally it. And she's already doing amazing. I just, you know, so to play a role in, I, I can tell you for my family, it's like 10,000 times better than it was. I mean, I don't, I can't pick a number because it's too high. The quality of life for my entire family because of this change with Jamie is indescribable. If I died tomorrow, it would be number one on the list for me by a country mile beyond the birth of my three children for the most important thing that's ever happened to our family. And so to think that the book is playing a role in making that possible for others is kind of all I need. It's a game changer. You can't find words. I mean, here's how I would put it. I went from not knowing if Jamie even had dreams to now knowing that he wants to go to college. And not only that he wants to go, but that that's a legitimate attainable dream. By the way, he's not the pioneer. There are other people with autism communicating on letter boards who have gone to college and made it work. I went from trying to guess how we were gonna help craft the next 50 years of Jamie's life to just being his errand boy to help make it all happen. What greater joy could a parent have than helping their child realize their clearly articulated dreams? So how can we help you get the word out, JB? Not enough people know about this. That's what I I'm think that, thinking. I think you're doing it. I think just having me on this show, I can tell you that every, every time I make any kind of media appearance, somebody either has a non-speaker themselves or knows someone who does and feels compelled to reach out to them. And I, once you've read the book, it's a transformative experience. And so if you're listening right now and you yourself have a non-speaker, just read it. And if you know someone who does, please buy them the book, send them the link, just give them that opportunity to spend those two hours. Because when you come out the other side, you get it. And people are taking action all over the country to help their kids right now. So the book, once again, my wonderful listeners is called Underestimated an Autism Miracle by J.B. Hanley and his son, Jameson Hanley. And it's an incredibly moving and inspiring story about a quest to finally be heard. Thank you so much. God bless you.